0: August 7th, 1959, a little after 1 a.m., and Roseburg, Oregon, is about to explode. Welcome to Kick-Ass Oregon History. Kick-Ass Oregon History, from the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Today we start the series with one of the most explosive stories in Oregon history, debatably the most explosive, the 1959 Roseburg Blast. On August 7th, 1959 at 1.10 a.m., Roseburg exploded. Cause I'm team! When a great orange ball of fire transformed the heart of the business district into a page from Dante's Inferno, it was a story of stark terror, a story of almost impossible escape from death, a story of courage, some futile, but nonetheless heroic. A story of firemen and policemen who ordered others to flee the danger zone, but remained themselves to stick with the job. Some died at their posts. The Oregonian, August 8, 1959. Early in the morning on August 7th, the Roseburg Fire Department received a call that there was a small fire at the Gerritsen Building Supply Company, where, unfortunately, barrels of paint thinner were stored en masse. Some trash cans outside the building were reported to be on fire. A fire engine and crew quickly responded. However, parked just a few feet away from the burning building was a truck. A truck loaded with two tons of dynamite and four and a half tons of Carprel, a trade name for a mixture of ammonium nitrate and diesel oil. Compare that with the 1995 bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, which used only three tons of ammonium nitrate and no dynamite. and You have a raging fire getting out of hand. A truck packed full of explosives just a few feet away. Heat. Flame. Well, here we go. The blast was so powerful that it lifted seven boxcars off of their tracks. Thirty city blocks had been damaged, with eight blocks being totally destroyed. The Coca-Cola bottling plant and Central Junior High School were reduced to rubble in addition to many other establishments. 350 other businesses were damaged. The blast left a 12-foot crater, 52 feet in diameter, in the concrete beneath the truck. Minor damage was reported in a one-mile radius. Windows were broken up to nine miles away. Some who saw the mushroom cloud at an estimated height of 300 feet figured that it was an attack from the Soviet Union. Eyewitness and Roseburg City policeman Sam Gosso recounted that he no sooner stepped out of the car than I heard someone holler, Get the hell out of there! That dynamite is gonna blow! The next thing I know, I came to about 100 feet away. The blast had hurled me and the police car against a wall. It looked like an A-bomb. There was a towering ball of flame as high as I could see. The people of Roseburg fared as poorly as the buildings. Fred Siles was walking about three blocks away from Ground Zero when the load exploded. He was near an automobile agency and was blown through the windows and flew for about 50 feet into the facility. His son Jimmy was apparently also not lucky. An article the day after the blast noted that Jimmy was near death with a finger-sized piece of steel in his head. There may have been some confusion around the Siles men, for another article from the next day identifies the injured as Fred, not Jimmy, in a Eugene hospital recovering from having a a three-and-a-half-inch steel bolt removed from the base of his skull. Nonetheless, this example demonstrates the force of the blast as well as the very real pain felt by the people in Roseburg. One Mrs. Tandy claimed that only a miracle saved her life. She reported that felled power lines surrounded her parked car, and that they sparked for several minutes on the ground around her vehicle. Gerald Wallace, an insurance salesman from Eugene, was blown through his room and into the hotel's hallway by the blast. We can only guess if he insured himself against giant fucking explosions. I'm, I'm dynamite. D&D. And I win the fight! I'm sure, dear ass kicker, that at this point you're asking, why in the hell did this happen? Well, let me tell you. That truck full of dynamite, fertilizer, and diesel was driven by one George B. Rutherford, 47, of Chehalis, Washington. And he parked it where he did because, well, because he arrived too late to deliver his load to a warehouse on the outskirts of town. He decided to rest until it opened the next morning and took a room at the Umpqua Hotel. He had apparently asked the watchman if it was fine to park the load next to the supply building, and the guard said sure. Rutherford, restless and not being able to sleep, got up and walked the three blocks from the hotel to the truck. He claimed that he was concerned about the load and said that he had checked on it at about 11 p.m. and that everything was fine. After he got back to his room, he fell asleep and was awakened at about 1 a.m. to the sound of fire alarms. Looking outside and seeing the flames near where he had parked the truck, he threw on his clothes and ran like a bat out of hell towards the inferno to move his truck away. He almost made it to the truck when he was blown off his feet by the explosions. Later, while being treated for his injuries at the hospital, in a state of shock, he was quoted as crying, Let me go. Let me go. I've got to go down there and see how many people I've killed. Many injured in the explosion had been drawn by a curiosity in the initial fire and sirens and had come to the scene to witness the incident. One can only imagine the additional carnage if the blast had happened at, say, 3.30 in the afternoon as opposed to 1 in the morning. Alvin Kuykendall's wife and two daughters were watching the fire from the window in their home. As he approached them, the explosives set off and destroyed the home. Alvin was thrown across the room and into the bathtub, Half-blind, pulling burning timbers off of his chest, he managed to claw through the wreckage to his family and got them to the hospital where his four-year-old daughter, Virginia, died. Mrs. Kuykendall succumbed to her wounds and died almost a week later. His sole surviving daughter, Janet, needed 1,800 stitches to close the gashes the blast had caused her. Even those not directly affected by the blast were impacted. The chief of the Roseburg Fire Department, Dutch Mills, heard the blast and called the station to find out what was going on. When he heard the immensity of the damage, he was instantly incapacitated by a heart attack. Assistant Fire Chief Roy McFarland was fighting the fire at the supply house and was probably killed instantly in the truck's blast. Despite the rapid decapitation of the emergency response leadership, the citizens of Roseburg were able to rally and face the disaster head-on. One fellow financially affected by the blast was the jeweler Jack West. His jewelry shop was in the Umpqua Hotel and it was so damaged by the blast that the windows and display cases were blown apart. Reporters from the Oregonian, dispatched to the scene, found Mr. West in the early morning light, quote, down on his hands and knees picking uncut diamonds out of the windows of broken glass in his shop. The Roseburg Blast has been considered one of the greatest disasters in Oregon history. The explosion resulted in over 100 people being treated at local hospitals, including Mercy Hospital, which itself was damaged in the blast, losing its operating room and some patient rooms. The heat had been so hot that the trees and shrubs outside the hospital ignited. Amazingly, only 14 people died from the blast. The blast became something of a case study for those interested in seeing how a 1950s small-town American community would fare from a Soviet nuclear bomb or missile attack. Walter Reed Hospital and the National Office of Civil Defense sent teams to survey the damage and control measures that were implemented to manage the emergency. Half a dozen Oregon civil defense groups from municipalities across the state came to study the scene as well. The experts determined that the blast was quite similar to the effects of a medium-sized bomb filled with conventional explosives. Authorities determined that a detailed report of the incident would resemble, quote, a Bible for use by various agencies in case of enemy attack or other emergency. Truck driver George Rutherford eventually took much of the blame for the incident. He never did jail time, nor was he required to pay in lawsuits that were directed at him. Throughout his life, Rutherford rarely spoke of the event, but he did leave an intriguing and noteworthy anecdote about the incident with his family. He said that when he was running towards the truck, about a block away, a pair of powerful hands lifted him up into the air by his shoulders, and as the blast hit, these hands carried him through the air and set him down two blocks away, in front of the Umpqua Hotel. Rutherford claims that it was an angel that picked him up, carried him away, and placed him on the steps of his hotel. This same angel did not prevent the leadership at the Pacific Powder Company from laying the blame squarely on Rutherford. Rutherford's own boss, Robert Clinton, told a federal and state inquiry that the explosives had resulted from, quote, failure in judgment of the man, end quote. His own boss. But one intriguing selection from an article of the disaster noted that there were rumors that the early morning fire was deliberately set. Burning timbers, cratered streets, a commercial district completely leveled, and a central business core destroyed by a disaster larger communities may not have arisen from these mountains of ashes. But you know Oregonians, Roseburg just kept on keeping on. It takes a hell of a lot more to destroy Roseburg than an equivalent of a medium-sized bomb filled with conventional explosives. I doubt you could kill the spirit of Roseburg with a several kiloton Ruski nuke. They're not going to go out like that. Thank you for listening to Kick-Ass Oregon History. And be on the lookout for more future podcasts from us. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast on the Roseburg Blast was brought to you by Oregon History, written by Doug Kent, Crispin and Andy Lindberg. You can check out our website at orhistory.com or follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. The email address is oregonhistorian at gmail.com. What? You stay historic, Oregon. And kick ass. And There was no help! No help from me!